welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Several episodes ago, we began a series we called Victory Over the Virus because we wanted to help people understand how the Bible can help them overcome the trials and tribulations, such as the one that accompanied the arrival of the COVID-19 virus. Last week, we started discussing a slightly different topic, but one that is still very relevant to the situation today, recovery and restoration. Today, we want to conclude that discussion by taking a look at the greatest recovery of all time, the resurrection of Jesus. R.D., would you like to give us an overview of where we're going today? Well, as we've remarked several times in recent weeks, we really want to be able to do a meditation, kind of an extended thought process about biblical prophecy. Because biblical prophecy, fulfilled biblical prophecy, is one of the strongest lines of evidence that the Bible has a supernatural origin. But we've been postponing that discussion of biblical prophecy in favor of trying to help people understand that, despite the fact that the Bible is a supernatural book, it's not only a supernatural book, it's also probably the most practical book ever written. And certainly, evidence of the fact that the Bible is a very practical book comes from the abundant material that the Bible contains to help people deal with difficult times like the ones that we've been experiencing recently. Right. And during our Victory Over the Virus series, we've shown how the Bible contains an abundance of reassurance for God's people, as well as showing how the Bible can help believers develop essential coping skills for troublesome times, like wisdom, inner strength, joy, character, and confidence. We've also seen both the positive and the negative is entirely consistent with biblical admonitions and observations. One of the sadder ones is how greed by some people played such a key role in allowing the virus to spread, 
And this is a tragic confirmation of Paul's admonition to Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Yes, but just as the Bible contains very relevant warnings, such as the one that Paul gave to Timothy about money, the Bible doesn't just abandon us when the evil that it warns us about turns up in our lives. And last time we talked about some observations that can help us in this day and time, especially in our current situation. The Bible contains some very relevant information that can help us as we begin a process of restoration and recovery. Now, last week we focused on an episode of recovery that's recorded in the 8th chapter of the book of Nehemiah. But as you mentioned a little bit earlier, today I want to see what we can learn from studying the greatest example of restoration of all times, the resurrection of Jesus. So, to set the stage for our discussion today, we need to do kind of a brief review of all that went on during that earth-shattering time. Earth-shattering. I like that. I see what you did there, because the earth really was shattered, or at least given a good shaking, early on Easter morning. As we heard in our opening scripture, the Lord sent an angel to remove the stone that was covering Jesus' tomb. Apparently, the way the angel went about it was to create an earthquake strong enough to break the seal the authorities had put on the tomb and to dislodge the stone from the groove or channel that had been used to ensure that it had rolled into its place. Exactly. But the events we heard in our opening scripture are really only a very small part of all that went on on that Easter morning, or throughout the rest of the day for that matter. I mean, a lot of us never focus on the fact that Easter morning was just the beginning of a 40-day period during which Jesus appeared many, many times in many different situations to hundreds of people, providing ample demonstration that Jesus really wasn't dead. Sometimes people kind of think that Jesus sort of popped in once or twice, maybe in the upper room or maybe by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that was it. But Jesus didn't just pop in once or twice. Jesus actually had an abundance of appearances. Now, of course, not all the appearances that he had were recorded as specific incidents in the Bible, but there are allusions in various places, especially in the writings of Paul, to some of the times that Jesus appeared where there wasn't a specific record of that appearance made. So, as the saying goes, Jesus really was alive, and he proved it repeatedly. I think of Jesus' resurrection as a kind of play that had four different acts. But today, we're really only going to have time to discuss the first two acts. And really, we're going to spend most of our time focusing on just one of those two. Well, to get us going, what are the four acts in the resurrection play? What's Act 1? Well, Act 1 was, interestingly enough, an act that had no human actors. Okay, so we're already starting off strangely. How can you have an act with no actors? I didn't say there were no actors. I said there were no human actors. The first act of the resurrection play was when Jesus actually rose out of the tomb. And the only actors who saw that part of the play were the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the angels. Now let that sink in for just a second. The first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection weren't people. They were angels. And of course, that's entirely appropriate. While scholars aren't unanimous about when they think angels were created, many scholars believe that the angels were present when God created the physical heavens and earth. 
If you go to the book of Job in chapter 38, verse 7, it says that the angels shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. So the angels possibly, quite likely, saw Jesus create the heavens and the earth. And unfortunately, the angels saw Jesus betrayed by people that Jesus had created. But then after that betrayal, the angels were also the first beings to see that Jesus still rules over the heavens and the earth and even death because the angels saw Jesus rise up and leave the tomb on his own power. Yikes. We tend to let the fact that there is an active spiritual realm slip our thinking, don't we? I mean, there's a whole supernatural realm out there that has its own players and actors. But like the old saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. So many of us rarely think about the spiritual realm, but we should. A lot of what goes on there affects events that happen on this earth, like the angels talking to Mary Magdalene and the other women who were at the tomb that morning. All right, what are the other acts? Well, Act 2 comprises the events at the tomb on Easter morning, and that's where I want to focus most of our attention today. But very briefly, Act 3 was the rest of the events on Easter Day, such as Jesus talking to Peter individually, and then Jesus' appearance in the upper room to the disciples, and Jesus talking to two followers on the road to Emmaus. So for me, Act 3 of the resurrection drama, if you will, is the balance of Easter Day after the events at the tomb. And Act 4? Well, Act 4 is the rest of the appearances that Jesus made before his ascension from the Mount of Olives, like when he reappeared in the upper room and allowed doubting Thomas to touch him. And while the Bible doesn't contain a lot of details about other appearances, we know that there were quite a number of them from various other allusions that are made in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians, where Paul refers to the fact that at one point, over 500 people at one time saw the resurrected Jesus. Wow! We could spend a lot of time just talking about the 40 days and what it means for our faith. But today we still want to help people think about how we can learn about recovery and restoration from the events at the tomb on Easter morning, what you're calling Act 2. So where do we start? Well, let's start with an obvious fact, but one that often goes unnoticed. How did Mary and the other women know where to go on Easter morning? Good question. The obvious answer is that after Jesus died, one or all of them remained at the cross and saw Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus down from the cross and then follow them to see where they put the body. Precisely. And that's the point. Through that whole terrible ordeal, the women never took their eyes off Jesus. They remained focused on Jesus throughout the period that started on Friday and then took such a dramatic turn on Easter morning. The women kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, and nothing that happened during that period made them change their focus. Now, how many of us can say that during this time of great difficulty that we have been having, that we've kept our eyes focused on Jesus the entire time? So the very first people that began to experience the amazing restoration and recovery of the resurrection were the people who never took their eyes off Jesus. And I just think that that's an amazing and important lesson as we begin our own process of recovery and restoration. Wow, that's so simple and yet so profound. But how exactly do we do that? Keep our eyes on Jesus during these times. Well, let's make another observation about the women's trip to the tomb and then combine the two observations. 
The account we heard in our opening scripture was the account from the Gospel of Matthew. If you go to a similar account in Luke's Gospel, Luke provides us with an additional detail that the women were going to the tomb carrying spices that they had prepared. Now the burial custom of the day, of Jesus' day, often had a dead body wrapped in long strips of linen with aromatic spices placed between the layers of the wrapping. Now the women knew that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had done some of this, but they likely suspected that given how quickly Joseph and Nicodemus had had to do their work, the women probably suspected that Joseph and Nicodemus had not been able to use all the spices that would have been appropriate to give honor to a teacher as distinguished as Jesus was. So, in essence, the women wanted to make sure that their beloved teacher received all the honor that was properly due to him. The important thing to note is that when the women set off to the tomb, they were already properly prepared to accomplish their work. So when we contemplate how these two observations go together, the fact that the women kept their eyes on Jesus and the fact that the women properly prepared themselves when they actually went off to accomplish their work, then we find out that you cannot divorce the spiritual aspects of recovery and restoration from the physical activity that also must be in place as we begin our own actions for recovery and restoration. I see where you're going. Keeping our eyes on Jesus means that as we begin to decide what is necessary for us to achieve restoration and recovery, we need to start out by asking Jesus for the wisdom we need. But we also need to begin our own diligent plans and preparation. So, a store owner has to start thinking about how it might be necessary to rearrange the interior of their store to provide more room for people to circulate. Or a restaurant owner needs to think about table spacing or even coming up with an entirely new strategy for delivering food. You know, I've often thought that if a few local restaurant owners wanted to form a sort of cooperative, they could work with homeowners associations to see if they could have some kind of scheduled delivery arrangement to participating homeowners, such as a regular Monday or Tuesday. A barbecue place, a pizza place, a Mexican restaurant could all offer a limited menu for delivery and the homeowners could select from the menu. Then the 5 o'clock delivery could take some meals to some homeowners. The 6 o'clock could take different meals to different homeowners, etc. This limits the number of delivery trips, maximizing each with a standard set of regular customers. American business people are really clever. They need just to create a new strategy for how to do the same volume, but with a different delivery approach. Exactly. So one of the reasons we should always start our planning and preparation with prayer and a diligent search of the scriptures is because no matter how smart we are, Jesus is smarter. I like your saying that one of the reasons we should always ask Jesus before we start something new is because Jesus may have a better idea. But turning to Jesus first doesn't mean we don't have to do our own homework. Which is exactly what the women's trip to the tomb demonstrated. They never took their eyes off Jesus. They never lost their concern for his honor. But they also didn't neglect to make proper preparations for their trip. Which brings us to another lesson that we learn from the women's trip to the tomb. Which is? Well, the Bible tells us that dawn was just breaking as the women were arriving at the tomb. Now, given that the tomb was outside Jerusalem, this meant that the women had set out very early on their journey. Matter of fact, they had set out while it was still dark outside. In other words, the women were up early and got a very early start on the day. Now, it's important to remember that although this is what we call Sunday, and Sunday for us is a weekend day, 
For the Jews of that time, their Sabbath was Saturday. So Sunday for them was actually the first day of their work week. So it's pretty much easy to see the women were up early going about their work, which in this case, the work was going to include doing the final honor to Jesus that they thought that Jesus deserved. The women were willing to do whatever it took to get their work done. And that alone is a powerful message about how we have to approach our own recovery and restoration. We have to be willing to put forth the effort. We have to be willing to do the necessary work. Yes. And here's another lesson from the women's trip to the tomb. When the women started out, they knew there was at least one problem for which they didn't have an immediate answer. They knew that they wanted to complete the task of honoring Jesus according to their customs, but they did not know how they were going to be able to roll away the stone that was covering the tomb's entrance. So even though the women had made all the preparations that they could, they knew that it was likely that they would encounter at least one or more problems along the way with which they would need help. But the fact that they knew that they might encounter problems did not stop them from setting out. In other words, they were willing to step out. They had done what they could. They had prepared as well as they could. They got up early. They started out. But they knew that all the problems that might face them weren't settled at that point. But they were still willing to step out and set forth on their task, on their mission, knowing that there would have to be solutions that would come to them along the way. What do you think they were thinking? I mean, in Mark 16.3, the Bible says they were asking themselves as they went, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Well, there are a number of possibilities. I mean, they knew that the tomb in which Jesus had been laid was a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had prepared for himself. Now, Joseph was a really rich man, which meant that his tomb was going to be in an upscale graveyard, if you will, the graveyard of the time. And so, just as it is in our day, uh, in those days, it would have been common for that kind of a graveyard where rich people were going to be buried to be very well cared for. So, the women may have just hoped that they would find one or more of the gardeners to help them move the stone when they actually got there. Some people might think, well, the women knew that the tomb was being guarded by a contingent of Roman soldiers. It's not absolutely certain that the women knew that the soldiers were going to be there because it's possible that the soldiers arrived after the women had seen the burial tomb sealed. But even if the women knew that the Roman soldiers were there, it's very unlikely that the women would have counted on the soldiers helping them with their task. I mean, in that day, most ordinary Roman soldiers would have essentially had nothing but contempt for the Jews, especially for Jewish women. So in fact, if the women knew that the soldiers were there, the women probably saw the soldiers as just another obstacle that they were going to have to overcome in order to gain entrance into the tomb. And fortunately for the women, God took care of both obstacles with a single action. Our opening scripture notes that not only did the angel God send create an earthquake that moved the stone, but also the angel's appearance was so brilliant that the soldiers fainted dead away out of fright. Boom! Stone moved, soldiers out of the way. Yes, but let's take a deeper look at that for just a second. Here's sort of a trick question. Why did God roll away the stone? I think most people usually think that God rolled away the stone so Jesus could leave the tomb. But I'm guessing you're about to say something quite different. Indeed. Jesus was already out of the tomb before the stone ever got moved. Jesus didn't need anyone to move the stone. 
Remember that Jesus is a single person, but he possesses two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. In his divine nature, Jesus had made everything. Colossians 1.16 tells us that God made everything through Jesus, and everything would include stones. So the stone would have done whatever Jesus told it to do. Jesus could have told it to roll, move, explode, or turn to mush for that matter. I mean, Jesus could have flung that stone aside like someone tossing a frisbee. Jesus, tossing the stone like a frisbee. What an image. Well, I'm not saying that he did, but he could have if he wanted to. Part of Jesus' divine nature is that he is omnipotent. He can do anything he wants except violate the attributes of his own character. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they can't do anything evil. They can't violate the attributes of their own holy character. But aside from that limitation, they can do anything they want to. Anyway, the basic point is, Jesus did not need to have the stone rolled away so he could get out of the tomb. The people needed the stone removed so they could look into the tomb. Uh Uh-oh, I feel one of those brain freezes coming on. This is amazing. You're saying that God didn't move the stone for Jesus' benefit. He moved it for our benefit. Bingo. As you observed earlier, God removed two obstacles for the women in one fell swoop. He removed the stone and he put the soldiers guarding the tomb to sleep so the women didn't have to worry about them. Well, let's focus on that for just a second. What all this means is that God knew that the women would face barriers as the women were seeking to complete their task. God not only knew that the women would face barriers, but God also knew what those barriers would be. But God took action to remove those barriers before the women actually encountered them. Well, what God did for the women that morning, God can still do for us today. Wow. That is a true revelation when you start to think about it. No doubt, a lot of people are feeling a bit overwhelmed as they think about what has to be done in order to begin to rebuild their lives or businesses. But God already knows that. God not only knows what they are feeling, but also God already knows everything that needs to be accomplished to bring about a complete recovery and restoration to our families, community, and nation. God knows there are barriers and obstacles that have to be removed or overcome. But as you said, God is equal to the task. Yes. As one contemporary Christian song puts it, our God is a mountain mover. So, let's review where we are right now with respect to our own restoration. From the women's trip to the tomb on Easter morning, we see that it's important to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and never lose sight of the fact that the goal for our lives should be to fulfill His plan and serve His purposes. As part of doing that, We need to plan and prepare for the things that we can anticipate, like the women preparing the spices with which they were going to complete a proper burial. We need to understand that it's important to not delay getting to work. We have to start out early and go the extra mile, just like the women were willing to leave the comfort of Jerusalem and walk all the way to the tomb. What else do you want us to think about today with respect to recovery and restoration? Well, I think that there are two more things that we should all keep in mind. First, let's go back to Act 1 of the resurrection drama, the one that involved only God and the angels. Before any human being ever saw anything happen on this earth, 
God was already busy preparing the most amazing blessing of all time for his people. God was already working in the unseen spiritual realm before those women ever set out to make sure that those women would be blessed beyond their imagination. And at the proper time, God sent an angel to begin to implement the plan that he had already prepared. Now, none of the women, none of the disciples, none of the people who had seen Jesus die on Friday afternoon knew that all this was going on. So the point is that there was a lot of activity occurring in the spiritual realm while the people were still just suffering and trying to figure out how they were going to move forward from there. Well, think about that for just a second. How can we be sure that right now God is not already preparing blessings in the spiritual realm that he is going to send to some of us? The short answer is, we don't. That's an astounding thought. We have a tendency to think that we're in on this fight all by ourselves. That doesn't have to be true, does it? No. And that's why upfront and continuing prayer is so important. As I say in one of my books, the tiniest prayer that stirs the hand of God contains more power than has ever been in all the armies that have ever marched on this earth. Sometimes we don't think about the fact that God actively intercedes on behalf of his people and for all of those who turn to him. God is always making preparations to bless his people, and he's always making those preparations long before the people arrive at the place where they actually need the blessings or can even recognize the blessings that God is going to give to them. And that brings us to the final thought that I want to leave our audience with today about recovery and restoration. What's that? Well, history, both our individual histories and our collective history as people, as mankind, is not circular, it's linear. Unlike how some religions view the unfolding events of this world, Christianity recognizes that there is an almighty, all-powerful God who is shepherding all the events of history toward a final conclusion that will bring us blessing and Him glory. So we can predicate all of our plans and actions to recover from this terrible plague that has been afflicting us on the sure and certain knowledge that God may allow us to struggle for a time, but God is not only going to move stones and terrify our enemies for us, He is also organizing and directing everything that happens to bring us to a final and wonderful victory. That's a great thought. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18, through 18, We never give up. Our bodies are gradually dying, but we ourselves are being made stronger each day. Those little troubles are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all our troubles seem like nothing. Things that are seen don't last forever, but things that are not seen are eternal. This is why we keep our mind on the things that cannot be seen. Wow! Sounds like to close out today, we need to hear a prayer of adoration for our great God, who will bring about our recovery and restoration according to His plans and as He wills it. A Prayer of Adoration of the Father Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise You and adore You and bow down before You. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence, and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, 
want, or lack. You are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. Because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. All creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been, and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.